Hey, so we are starting a, a brand new series called David, super creative title, um, but it's about uh, the second king of Israel. This is back from the 11th century BC about uh, a little boy named David who became King David. And uh, we're going to walk through the life of David and what we can learn in his 40 or so years of reign. Um, today, we're going to start just a little bit before that took place. Um, and this is all coming from the Old Testament in First and Second Samuel. Uh, as we're going to find these stories, some really um, notable stories that maybe many of you have just heard, or those of you who grew up in the church watched take place on a flannel board when like people were like, meow, and died. <laughs> They're like, wait, they fell off. No, they gone. Um, to uh, stories that uh, maybe you've never heard. Like next week, we're going to talk about one of his two major blunders that when it's in his early 20s. How many of you have ever had one of those? <laughs> Uh, and uh, something that maybe they haven't, uh, we don't talk about as much, but we're going to talk about it here before we get to a lot of the things that we talk about. So this all is taking place back in the 11th century BC. This was a very violent time. Um, and uh, I think often we look over um, what ancient history looked like and specifically the violent time. Um, during these times, there was ancient warfare, and it took place all of the time. I mean, we, we really do brush over a lot of the Bible where it's like, and thousands of people died. And then we just cruise on, and like, wow, that's great. Because, you know, oftentimes we romanticize it, um, we glamorize it, um, you know, we sanitize it, we fictionalize it through movies like Braveheart and Gladiator and 300, there's all these kinds of warrior movies. But in the reality, if we could just get there and taste it and smell it just for a second, if we can all just pause and sit there, I think it's going to set up just this scene that we're going to talk about today just a little bit better. Ancient warfare was much different than it is today. I mean, today um, it happens from a distance, right? It's far away. You're shooting something at someone else. You can see what's coming. It's a bird's eye view. It's a drone's view. It's all of these things that uh, are not anything like what it used to be. What it used to be was hand-to-hand -hand combat. And everyone had to do it. Um, and everyone showed up to do it with like sticks and farming tools and whatever it would be. You showed up on the battlegrounds and went to battle with another person And the only thing that was protecting you usually in a shield wall was a shield that covered like your belly button to your throat. And you would go and you would clash against someone else and you would see them eye to eye. You would see exactly what they look like. You could see into their soul. I mean, think about that. And in their face, you would either see terror, you would see uh, a massive amount of aggression. On their breath, you might smell whatever they had eaten or whatever they had drinking to get up the courage to go into this battle, into this fight. And as you were smashing up against someone else, smelling their breath, seeing their face, touching their body, um, if you had ever met someone that was calm and just stared at you, you knew you were in for it. You knew you probably weren't going to make it through that day because you were looking into the eyes of a man killer that was calm, cool, and collective because this is what they did. And your friends and your brothers next to you, if any of them got afraid and they turned and they ran away and they retreated, you knew you would most likely die because you would be overcome in the midst of this battle. You didn't know what was going to take place as far as the result at the end of this battle. 
You were covered in blood, some of your own, some of your opponents, and you didn't actually know what your wounds were until after the battle had taken place where the adrenaline uh, was gone and you got to find out like what wounds that you took. Your friends um, and really family that were standing alongside of you that were dying by the thousands would be left there. And before anyone else could treat them or take them and give them a burial or say goodbye, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would already be partaking. It was gruesome. It was gross. It was dirty. It was hard. It was face to face. It was very, very violent. And it was very, very intimate. What an opener to a message. You're welcome. (laughs) So now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled in Judea. Saul and the Israelites assembled and they camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Saul is the first king of Israel, the first one that we have. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites occupied another and there was a valley between them. This was very common for battles. There was two high grounds. They met in the middle and they fought. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span, measuring. This comes in, a lot of people say, between eight and nine feet. So basically, he was a gigantic basketball player, right? He's a huge person, abnormal. We hate him every once in a while. You've seen him. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, six feet long, and then its iron point weighed 600 shekels. About 15, 15 and a half pounds was just the tip of this rod. That was a killer. Goliath stood and he shouted amongst the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we, the Philistines, will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And then he probably did the whole pound thing because <laughs> that's just like what you see in a vision at that time. And on hearing that, on hearing this, Saul, the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified because there was a giant a man killer out there, shouting. And this went on day after day after day for weeks. And they were terrified. Because this man killer is a giant could literally stand in the second or third row of the ranks with his giant spear in the shield wall and just reach over and stab and kill and kill. And you couldn't even get to him. You couldn't even touch him yet. So it's hand-to-hand combat. And they needed a champion. And there's Philistines out there yelling, hey, I'm defying your God, I'm defying you, come out and fight me. And so the Israelites looked for a champion and who they looked to was their king. Their king who was supposed to save them, save their people, the people of Israel. The king also who was head and shoulders above anyone else in height. Saul was a tall king. So he looked like a giant himself. 
This is what they looked at. He was handsome. He was tall in stature. And so when this is taking place, they're looking to a champion, which should be their king, because you got a giant, we're sending our giant. It's on, right? Plus, it's the king of Israel. God's people is going to protect us. And so they looked to him, and Saul was missing. He was terrified and dismayed. It said he was terrified and dismayed himself. He gone. So looking for a champion and they can't find it. This is where part of the story collides with our story. Because we, we place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in what we depend on. In fact, we place our hope in who we depend on. Have you ever noticed that? We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope on who we depend on. And when the person that we've placed our hope in disappoints us, oftentimes the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disdain, the measure of our anger, and certainly the measure of our disappointment. This is why we have the potential to resent our parents more than anyone else. Because you've grown up and you've had this difficult situation. You put all your hope and your trust in this person and something else has happened, right? Wherever we put our hope and whoever we put our hope in, there lies trust. And where our trust is, is where our hope is. And Saul is missing. And the army's hope begins to die. As they cower for over a month as this giant man killer comes out and calls down on them. See, um, Saul's missing. This takes us back to um, before, the pre-story to this story. 400 years earlier, we're going to take a look at this. See, God never really wanted Israel to have a king. Saul now is the first king, but God never really intended Israel to have a king. He was the king. He wanted no other king besides him um, that they would place their hope and trust in. And so that's how he created it. 400 years um, back, before this event, God established a theocracy, right? A nation of law administered specifically by judges, right? So God was king that gave the law. Then there was judges that administered the law and dealt with those things. So all hope and trust was put in him. And you see this through the exodus of uh, Egypt. But people didn't like that, right? Um, People started saying, we're used to this. Egypt had a pharaoh and we need a king. And so if we jump back and we look at a guy named Samuel, who was a prophet of God at that time, he was the one who appointed judges. And so if we jump back to chapter 8, it says this. When Samuel grew old, because he's growing older now, he's appointing the next. He's going to appoint his sons as Israel's judges. But his sons didn't follow his ways. We see that. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. Essentially, they were corrupt, right? That was the most money wins. You know, you slide a little money in the back door here. It's, you know, modern day politics still happening now just as it happened then. And so the elders, they gathered together, and they came to Samuel, and they said to him, you're old, They said more than that, actually. Your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king. Appoint a king to lead us. 
as such as all the other nations have. Everybody else has a king. Come on, we need a king too. When we need a good king here, this is what we want, right? And so this disturbed him. Said, give us a king. And so he prayed to the Lord because he was displeased by this. He's like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. God created this. It's supposed to be judges. He's the king. But so he was, he was upset. So he prayed to him. And then the Lord said to him after his prayer, listen to all the people that are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected. But, but Sam, it's me. They've rejected me as their king. Now listen to them. But do this. Warn them, <laughs> warn them solemnly and let them know what a king will do that is going to reign over them and he's going to claim rights over them. So be prepared, let them know that he's going to raise the taxes and he's going to take some of your women children as servants and he's probably going to claim the best land. Make them understand what a king does so they aren't surprised by this. And the nation's insistence on having a king having someone to reign over them locally in that area sets the stage for one of our most detailed ancient accounts of ancient history. And it all sets the stage for the story of King David, who was the second king, who is the greatest king, not an imperfect king, but a king that would reign for 40 plus years sets the stage for us to understand the life of who King David is as a king who is reluctant at times, who we find that is immensely confident and somehow is extremely humble, unlike a typical king. Unlike a typical king, David specifically loved the law, right? The law that God had gave as the king in this theocracy, David loved it. He loved God and he understood the place of God in his kingdom, right? Most kings would adjust the law for themselves. So if a king had made a decision or they had broken the law, they would have a lot of the law rewritten to do what they were doing so they could continue to do it, right? Who doesn't want that world, <laughs> right? This is what it did. Kings were the kings. They were the boss. They were the top right? But David, we see that he loved the law even when it condemned him. He loved the law even when it condemned him. And David allowed himself to be broken by the law throughout his imperfect uh, time as a king. And throughout his imperfect reign as a king of Israel, David never, ever, ever confused. He was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. He was never confused about the identity of the true king of God. And see what happens to us and what happens with kings is success actually confuses the best of us, right? Success actually confuses the best of us. A little bit of success and the next thing you know, we're all sitting on the throne of our own life, right? A little, bit of, a little bit of success with a hobby or a talent, a little bit of success with sales, a little bit of success in the family, a little bit of success with parenting, a little bit of financial success, a little bit of uh, relational success, a little bit of academic success. And next thing you know, we're sitting on the thrones of our own life. Because it can like skew us, it can mess us up, it confuses the best of us. 
Because we're successful. Look at what I'm doing. And once we're sitting on the thrones of our own life, what do we do? We start to place our hope in us. We start to place our hope in us. And we become the one we depend on the most. Or we become dependent on another person who has been successful. And they then can disappoint us. And David never did this. This is what we can learn from him. He never did this. And we catch our first glimpse into this as a 15-year-old boy. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites, the king of Israel, were dismayed and terrified, missing in action. Hope is being lost. And David, this little boy, a 15-year-old boy who's a shepherd boy, has now shown up on scene with a care package from dad to his three older brothers who are all veterans in the army. And upon coming, he shows up and he starts hearing this Goliath guy come down multiple times a day and beat his chest and defy everyone else. And he's caught off guard. David isn't dismayed or terrified. David is offended. He's offended. David shows up and is offended. David asks the men standing around him, he says this, what's going to be done to that man over there who kills the, the Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Like, who's, who's going to get to celebrate that party? This is crazy. Who's the uncircumcised? This is like bad words for them. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the army of the living God? Are you kidding me? Take your banana bread. We need to talk. No, it doesn't have nuts. No, no dad, remember. No, I'm trying. Sorry. Rabbit hole. Who is this? He's offended. He's going, what, what's going on? And so then there's like chatter because, you know, David's like all amped up and he's like, what's going on? Why would you guys let this happen? And they're like, look at him. They're like, oh yeah, you think you understand. Have you seen him as a giant nine foot man with a big old spirit? You will die. And then we'll be like, he gone. And then no more banana bread. No, I don't know. <clears throat> so Saul hears about this. All of a sudden he shows back up in the picture because he's like, oh gosh, somebody wants to go fight him. It's great. Might be his last day, but cool. He hears about this and calls him in. And so David comes walking in because he's heard, hey, there's a guy who's upset and offended and he wants to go slay the giant, right? And so he comes walking in, rolling in, and all of a sudden Saul goes, are you kidding me? You're like a boy, right? You don't even have armor. You can't do anything. And so he sits down. He's ready to dismiss him. He's like, this is a joke, right? But David then gives his resume and says, how do you let this guy defy God? Forget all this. You're the king. But listen to this. My dad put me in charge of sheep. And one time, a lion came along and he took one of the sheep. And then I left the 99 sheep to go save the one. I didn't let it go and be dead. I went and hunted that lion down, took the sheep away, and I killed the lion. Then I came back. Then... Another time, a bear came along and took one of the sheep away from the 99. And I left the 99, went back and saved the one, and I killed the bear. So then he hops in and says, your, kill, your servant killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine 
will be like one of them, the lion or the bear, because, yeah, tell me, David, why? I'll tell you why. He has defied the armies of the living God whom I love because I have a true king and I understand who he is. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. The beautiful thing about uh, the story of David as we unpack this over the coming weeks is that um, not only do we have the life in this very detailed ancient account of his life, but we actually get a really beautiful glimpse and lens into his mind and his emotions because David actually wrote most of the Psalms. I don't know how many of you are a journaler uh, or how many of you are a musician or artist and you write or you draw, but that's who David was. David also journaled his thoughts and write in song and poetry. And so we get this beautiful glimpse in the midst of his life and how this story took place of what was going on in his emotions and his mind and his heart. And so to pause in the story for just a minute, let's take a look at what gives him such strength and power in this moment as a little boy to say, hey, this is who my God is. It says in Psalms 25, 1, David writes, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I put my trust. And you, Lord God, I put my trust. I put my trust. No one, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. This is what he believes. This is in his heart. This is in his mind, his emotions. God, I put my trust in you. No one who hopes will ever be put to shame. This is so amazing, so beautiful. Then he says, guide me. But David, you're a king. Like, you're the, you're the man. Like, you're the guy. But yet you're submitting and saying to a God who you've put your trust and your hope in, guide me. Guide me in your truth. Teach me for you, for you are God, my Savior. And my hope, my hope is in you all day long. All day long. This is who David was. This is who he was in here. This was the transformed work that God had done in him that he had fallen in love with and understood in the midst of a very violent period of time. Amidst a very unknown part of time. Back to the story. 15-year-old clear-eyed, clear mind, makes his way down to the valley of Elah. And a boy with no armor on, because it wouldn't fit, and it was too heavy, (laughs) no weapon, rolls up to the giant. And Goliath comes down and sees him and begins to laugh and says, am I a dog? You come to me with your little sticks and toys, little boy, like we're going to play fetch, I will take you out, and we will own all of you. And David, calm, I mean, talk about, like I can't even imagine what this seems like, just calm, cool, and collective. He looks right back at that giant person and says, today, the Lord will give you over to me. 
I am going to kill you. (laughs) It gets gruesome. Then he says, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field will feast on your carcass today, along with all of the rest of your army, because you do not, I do not need to come at you with a sword or spear or weapons like you. I come to you with the Lord, and you have defied the Lord, and my hope and my trust is in him. So I will not take you. The Lord has already given you to me. Then he killed him. (laughs) That fast. And immediately became the most popular person in Israel and the most feared person amongst all of the Philistines. We talk about like a, a, a switch. That was his shining moment. At first, probably the Israelites watching going, are you kidding me? This is our champion as a little boy. We're all done. Like, because when this is done, remember, we're like their slave people now. And immediately it shifts. And the Philistines make a huge mistake and they turn and they run the other way. And then Saul and all the army go and chase them down and they enjoy the riches of just a horrific scene as they slayed the Philistines. They're just as David had prophesied. To Goliath right before him. Now, David put his hope and his trust in the Lord. And those, friends, that we can learn from, those who put their hope and trust in the Lord do a couple things. One, they see clearly. They see clearly. He looked and he saw that he couldn't control the variables. He can't control it as a giant. You know, we all have giants. Take, it, take the analogy of it. He couldn't control what was really going to happen in the phone call. He couldn't control what the doctor was going to say on the other line. He couldn't control what news you're going to get from here. He couldn't control what your kid did and how they were going to act and how things were going to end up. He couldn't control ultimately what they were going to make, how they're going to make that decision in that relationship. I mean, pick, pick your poison, literally, the giant of your life. He couldn't control the variables, but he saw and had clarity that God was in control of it and he could put his trust and his hope in there. So those who put their hope in the Lord can see clearly and say, I cannot control this, but I can do one thing. I can put my trust in here. And when my trust is in God, I can do the second thing. I can act confidently. And he walked right down into it and acted confidently. This is the Lord's. I can't control this. I've surrendered this over. And when we can put our hope in the Lord, we can see clearly, we can act confidently, and then we can walk humbly. Those who walk humbly say, guide me. Guide me, God. Those who walk humbly understand that they can't control the thing. There's just too many variables, and so they lean the weight of their life, as David did, into this daily prayer. In you, Lord my God. I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. My hope is in you all day long. So what's the next step for us all for this week before we get into, this really becomes the staple as we walk through of David's life. But a step for us, maybe there's some of us here today that do not have our trust in the Lord our God, that do not have our hope in him. And we continually are disappointed by ourselves or the person whom we've become dependent on and trusting in as they're fallible and they break down. And we feel dead. We feel lost. 
but we feel broken. So maybe today for some of us, the first step is going to be for the first time surrendering over and saying that same thing. God, today, I put my trust in you. I put my hope in you all day long. For some of us, this week maybe, this is going to be the scripture we memorize. We need to write it down right now. Psalm 25. Throw down. Be David. And when you wake up in the morning, you're going to say, wake up before the world screams at you because it will. Before you turn on the news, before you look at the email, before you look at the Facebooks, before you look at any of the other things, before you listen to your children. (laughs) It will scream at you. It's going to all day. But before that happens, before the giants of the day begin to pop up, pause, wake up and say, today, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And then you go to breakfast and you do the same thing. You get in the car and you're getting ready before you answer that email, before you get on that conference call, before you drop your kids off at school or daycare, before you walk into that conversation, before you can pray that prayer. And you, Lord my God, I put my trust in you. It's just a breath prayer, a breath prayer. And you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And when you get home, you do the same thing. And someone says, how was your day? And you say, I put my trust in him. And my hope's in him all day long. And sometimes it's like, it was awesome. And sometimes it's like, I need to do it again (laughs) tomorrow. (laughs) Because I need the hope. Right? May we take next steps. And may we learn from our king as in God, and may we learn from a king, an imperfect one, his name's David. Would you stand with me? If that's your next step, if you're here, I want you to know there's nothing so dead that God cannot resurrect again. There's nothing so broken that he cannot mend, and there's nothing so lost that he cannot find. You have to surrender, though. And put your trust in him that he'll do that transforming work that only he can do. And so if that's you today, you're ready to walk into that. We have a great uh, gift for you. It's just the next step. It's, called a, it's a journal. It's called This Changes Everything. Because when you put your trust and your hope in him, it changes everything. You'll find hope when you're hopeless. It's crazy. In the midst of facing all of the giants that you're going to face. This is a gift for you. It's out in the lobby. It's 21 days. Ask tough questions of it. Work through it. We'd love to follow up with you. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I'm not ready to do the whole surrendering thing. Like, I'm still kind of hopeful in myself. We're we're seeing how that's working-ish. But you're willing to explore? Gift. Take it. Let's go on a journey. Let's figure this out together as a faith community. And for the rest of us, memorize that. We're going to talk about it next week. It's a great verse to memorize. A great breath prayer to give yourself over and over and over again in the midst of just chaos and giants in life, right? Uh, this is one of your first times with us. I'm so glad you're here. Give us a couple weeks. Pretty much anyone in this room can tell you where the new friends desk is because they've all gotten free stuff before and it's your turn. So t- take advantage of it. Uh, love to get the opportunity to get to know you. Like I said, give us a couple weeks um, and come back for this conversation in this series. Um, and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity. It's because of your generosity we get to do so many things around here, including our middle schoolers are leaving for camp today. Pray for their leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. They're leaving at like 3.30 today. Pray for their leaders. But seriously, pray for these children. They're young men and women. 
Uh, and I can say that because my daughter's going. She's a seventh grader. So I, I know the transformation, the, the impact and the opportunity children are going to have, young men and women, these students are going to have to connect their identity to who God is and put their hope and trust in him and not the world and everything else that's screaming at them. So please, please, I covet as a faith community of family on behalf of myself and the other families in here that are sending their young, their young ones, would you please just pray that God would do what he does and they can latch onto that now, like right now, this week, and uh, throughout this time and that we just steward that well. So sorry, side selfish thing for all of us in here. <laughs> We're faith community. Uh, love to send you off with a blessing. As we get out of here, we have this posture of giving up and just receiving. May you put your trust in God this week and may you be released from whatever giant has been screaming at you for weeks and days and months. May you receive just freedom from that. Be blessed. I love you, friends. I'll see you next week.